0: Hey guys, before we dive into this episode, I want to mention show sponsor Haya Health. Now Haya Health is a company that's doing children's supplementation the right way. And what do I mean when I say that? Well, it was a company started by two dads who were sick and tired of the sugar that was prevalent in all other children's vitamins. And we all know that sugar is such a deterrent to gut health because in gut health is where the immune system lives. And so Haya is doing it absolutely the right way. No sugar and plenty of fruits and vegetables compacted into this tiny little vitamin that you can give your children and feel really good about doing. And we have worked out an exclusive deal with Hia Health just for you. You go to HayaHealth.com forward slash unstressed. You can receive 50% off your first order. That's dot com forward slash unstressed to receive your 50% off your order today. This episode is also brought to you by Brittany Watkins. Now, her Think and Thin Tapping System is designed to reprogram your brain and body so that you stop craving things like chocolate, sweets, bread, cheese, wine, or whatever your kryptonite is. Now, I did a session with Brittany. I used Nutella as my kryptonite because it absolutely is, and I was completely blown away by how easy and also Calming her tapping process is. And she has built this over many, many years. She's helped tens of thousands of women reprogram their brains so that they're not craving sweets and gaining weight. Now, as we head into this new year, I think it's so important that health be the priority of all of our lives. And by getting control of these of these small tendencies to overeat or eat things that are not healthy for us, you're really putting yourself ahead of the game. So if you're new to tapping, I would absolutely recommend going back and listening to my episode with her. That's episode 238. And then of course, go check out her program at pushthefoodaway.com and use my code UNSTRESSED to save 50% and change your life in 2021. <music> Holocaust survivor William Harvey was born in 1924 in the Czech Republic. His graduation in 1943 was quickly followed by deportation to Auschwitz on a four-day cattle car ride. He was later transferred to Buchenwald and freed when the Americans liberated the death camp in April 1945. Harvey went on to build a successful life as a cosmetologist in Beverly Hills, working with some of Hollywood's biggest stars like Judy Garland and more. Harvey is adamant that if you want to have a good life, you cannot feel sorry for yourself or you will destroy your life. He added that the greatest thing you can do in your life is to reach out and uplift someone else who is less fortunate than you. And hearing his story, really sitting with it, was was hard to do. It's not an easy thing to hear, especially after the crazy year that we've had. But I think it's important. It's important to hear stories like this, to remember what humanity has been through. And not only that, what it can do. It can survive. It can thrive. It can persevere. And we all have that ability within ourselves. We all have that. But it all comes down to perspective and how we perceive our life circumstances and what we do with that. And again, what we do for others. And so it's really the great honor of my life, of this show, to have him on to share his story, to share his wisdom with you. And it's a conversation that I will never forget. And I'm just so grateful that he was able to be here and that I'm able to share it with you all across the world. So without further ado, please enjoy my episode with William Harvey.
1: I come from a family of six. I had four sisters and a brother. My city was called Berehova, was situated below the Carpathian Mountains. It was well known, my city was well known as here, Napa Valley. We were growing grapes and making wine. That was the main industry. My father was in the First World War. He was prisoned in Russia for six years. He was a very sick Man and he was most of the time in a hospital in different cities. So I grew up, I barely knew my father because he wasn't in my city. My mother became the sole supporter of the family. She was a dressmaker, but what I know about her talent, she was more like a dress designer. She made her own pattern. She worked very hard. She was determined to educate six children and also make a living for them. Under extremely primitive circumstances, when I say primitive, we had a home. There was no electricity. There was no indoor plumbing. My father and transportation was your feet. There was horse and buggy days those days. So my mother had to go to the farmer's market every day to purchase the food, then to prepare it for six children and to also make a living. I always seen her sitting by the sewing machine, never complaining, never even took time to go to bed. I assumed that she didn't have the time. For to sleep on a sewing machine, then I heard the machine going again. So I was about six, six, seven years old at the time. I never worried about myself, thank God, that I was born with the wisdom to know how much my mother loved us, but she didn't have the time to spend with the children. She have to work hard. I always had the understanding. I never worried about myself. I just worried, how could I ease my mother's pain to help her? Well, I was a very meticulous child. I liked to look clean. So I decided to wash my own clothes. Iron ran my own clothes. Age of 10, I decided to go and work in a vignette. The vignette was situated about approximately a half a mile upon my house, I could walk there. In the springtime, I to work, work in the vineyards to cultivate the growth of the grapes. In the fall, we used to harvest the grapes. I remember it real well. I was only 10 years old at the time. And <clears throat> in the harvest time, they put a backpack on me that was extremely heavy wood order to carry the grapes from the mountain. It was growing in a flat land. To the winery, well, it was so heavy that I collapsed. I was in pain, but I didn't dare to cry. I didn't want to lose my job. My colleagues was very kind and helpful, and they showed me how to carry the heavy woodpack with the grapes. To the winery, so I was so happy that I was able to earn some money to help my mother. Things begin to be very bad all the way in Europe. It was in the early 1930s that Hitler was coming to power. Naturally, the communication wasn't like it is today. I didn't even own a radio at the time, but somehow we managed to hear what was going on. My mother had a friend in Berlin, and his 19-year-old son escaped the prosecution, came to our city, Then he proceeded with his journey. He was telling us how they were killing the Jews. They were compensating the Jewish property and they were burning the Jewish literature. So that's the way we managed to hear what was going on. When I was a teenager, I heard Hitler speak on the radio to the world. And he announced, I'm gonna kill every Jew in this world. If I don't succeed to kill every Jew in this world, I make it sure the one who remains alive not gonna be happy. Doesn't matter what part of the world they gonna live in, they gonna lose some member of their family. In the end, he said, "Why? There is no why. Jews are guilty when they born." Well, you can imagine, ladies and gentlemen, I was a teenager. Life was difficult as it was. Tried to define and to make some sense of it, why I was considered to be a second-hand citizen. I felt I was just as good as anybody else. Naturally, before, this, before the Second World War, the diamond our, in Europe, was not America. It was Great Britain and France. And we we didn't take it seriously. We, we felt that they're going to stand up. They're not going to stay silent about it. But to our disappointment, they did stay silent. And Hitler was able to pursue... With his twisted ideology. Germany was in an extremely difficult economic situation. They were extremely advanced to create war machines, tanks, and aeroplanes to kill people, but their land wasn't even fertile enough to grow potatoes. So Hitler decided he's gonna use the Jews as scapegoats. As I was growing up, I always was told that the German people is the most cultural, they had the most education, they were very industrial people. I had a difficult time to comprehend. Hitler wanted to create an aerial nation, everybody with blonde hair and blue eyes. What a hypocrite. He had the ugliest black hair with black mustache, a distorted face. And, ladies and gentlemen, the whole world stood silent. They could have stopped them very easily. At that time, the Prime Minister of England was Naval Chamberlain. Instead of stopping Hitler, they could have stopped it very easily. He decided 1938 to go and negotiate with Hitler in Berlin. Out of the negotiation, they cut up Czechoslovakia. The part where I came from was given to Hungary. Part of Romania was given to Hungary. And the Sudeten part of Czechoslovakia was given to Germany. In 1939, Big Bang came under Hungarian occupation. By the way, the Hungarian government and the Hungarian people were very anti Semitic, and they are even today. As soon as they came to town, they immediately made us feel second hand citizens. In 1941, the Hungarian government decided only six percent of the Jewish children were able to pursue their education. I was fortunate enough to fall into the six percent. I graduated at age of eighteen from a gymnasium. Unfortunately, my graduation present became Birkenau Auschwitz. Birkenau was the exterminating camp consisted of all the guest chambers and the crematorium. Auschwitz was the concentration camp. In 1943, Russia and Germany was in war. Around December 1943, we became under German occupation. By the way, the Hungarian people and the Hungarian government were very very willing collaborators with the Germans. As soon as they came to town, they made us wear a yellow star written on a Jew. That's the only way we were allowed to walk out of the house. Not too long afterwards, they decided to establish a ghetto in a city. By the way, my city was called Berehova, The population was approximately 26,000, give and take. One-third of them was Jewish, surrounded by little farm town where less Jewish people was living. So first they decided to take the people from the little farm town. We had a red brick factory, which was manufacturing bricks to build buildings. When the brick came out of the oven, have to dry, so they had a long place with a roof found, no side to it. That's where they would put the brick to dry. That's where they established the ghetto. So as I said, first they decided to collect the people from the little farm town. They went to their door without any notice, gave them five minutes to take any possession that they wanted to bring with them. You can imagine, the people was very upset to leave their home where their parents worked for a lifetime. They bought them into that so-called ghetto, house them that I described before the brick would dry. It was this part of the world. The winter usually arrives around November. We get a tremendous snow. The snow remained till the following year of the spring. So it was freezing cold. The people bought very little, didn't have warm clothes with them. They had no blankets. They were confused. They were families together, young and old, babies, little children. We were still in a city. So we decided to go to door to door to collect warm clothes, warm blankets, and much food as we possibly can to try to make the people more comfortable. And all the people was born in the little farm town. One day they came to my mother's house also without any notice, knocked on the door. My mother, myself, and my two sisters was home. My two other sisters emigrated both of my sisters got married. They each had children. We corresponded with them. We exchanged pictures and letters. But we haven't seen them in the past 10 years because Brussels Belgium was on the German occupation, and Jews was not allowed to travel in Europe. So as I said, my mother, myself, my two sisters, my aunts, my cousins, and their children, we were all born into that so-called ghetto. We were there for six weeks under terrible sanitation condition and the harsh treatment that we got from the Germans and the Hungarians. Very little food to eat. They promised to take us to war. After suffering for six weeks there, one day the train arrived with all the cattle cars. The sliding door slammed open on a cattle car. They pushed in as many people to that path. a cattle car as possibly can that we were crushed like sardines. When the car was filled, the sliding door slammed close on us. There was no windows, only the wooden cracks of the car where the light came through and the car began to move. I cannot tell you what a terrible journey that was lasted four or five days and nights. The sanitation condition, the children were crying. They had fever, there was no medication after suffering four or five days. The train stops. The sliding door slams open. We didn't know where we arrived. When we first glanced out, it looked like a twilight so Big is going to the sky. Smoke was going all over. We didn't know where the smoke was coming from, but we find out soon enough. We arrived to Birkenau Auschwitz. I'm speaking about the year of 1944, the spring of it, where hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews were born into the Auschwitz concentration, Birkenau Auschwitz concentration. Birkenau was the exterminating camp, consisted of all the gas chambers and a crematoriums. Auschwitz was the concentration camp. Poland was under German occupation three years prior to the Hungarian Jews. So some of the Polish prisoners were in the camp for three years, some of them they were two years there. They worked by the railroad station for the Germans. The Assets were standing front of us, hollering Schnell Schnellman and Hari the cattle wagon, who they picked. To be alive, go to the right. Who was condemned to die? Older people, when I say older, 45, 50 years old, and young mothers who were holding their children in their arms, go to the left. When the German SS Degendlok, the Polish prisoner who walked by the railroad station, whispered, the young mother. Give your children to the grandparents. We didn't know why, but they knew why. They wanted to save the young young mother's life. They knew that they cannot save the children's life. Some of the mothers were successful enough to give the children to the grandparents, but most of the children was bitterly crying, didn't want to be separated from the mother. So the young mother, with her children, go to the left, went to the gas chamber and a cramotor All the young people who was ordered to go to the right, they marched us into a big magazine, made us trip completely naked. They took every little possession that we still had with us, which was very little. They shaved our hair. They gave us a prisoner suit to wear. And in those days, many people had caught fillings and got it in their mouth. They would yank it out of their mouth. As they marched us from Birkenau to Auschwitz concentration camp, we cast, passed by the gas chamber, the gas chamber had little windows where the Germans would look in to see how far the people was dying from the gas. They used the gas very sparingly because they had a shortage. We were able to glance in and to see how our loved one was dying and we had no power to do anything. Anybody would look a certain way that they didn't like it, you would immediately be killed. They marched into the Auschwitz concentration camp, which consisted of thousands and thousands of wooden barracks. Each barrack was approximately thousand square feet. They pushed into the thousands. By the way, it was surrounded by barbed wire; nobody could escape. Pushed in as many people they possibly can. That we didn't even who had room to lay down. Four o'clock in the morning, they would knock on the door and we have to come out, start to stand in roll call. I don't know what was the purpose of it because I said nobody could escape. Every morning when we came out of the barracks, front of the barracks, that people, they looked like skeleton, except for skin on them. Was front of the building, piled up on each other so high, that I have to look to see the end of it. And sometimes it took them three, four days before they picked them up. The reason was, as I said, that the mass killing went on. They were murdering between twelve and 13,000 people a day. So sometimes it took them three, four days before they were picked up. We got one today, a bowl of soup, they called it. It was about this big. No utensils. Five to six people have to share it. So we handed it mouth to mouth until that soup disappeared, which didn't fit for an animal. But if you didn't drink from it, you didn't survive. And if we were lucky that day, we got a piece of bread to eat. Next to us was thousands and thousands of wooden barracks and empty, but suddenly filled up with families together, young and old, little children. And I seen that I was a little bit envious that they were together. And I witnessed what happened to my family and all the other loved ones. I happened to speak through the barbed wire to one of the gentlemen who I discovered was born in my city, moved up to the Sudeten part of Czechoslovakia, which was on the German occupation. The city was called Nidica. The population was approximately 30,000. They killed one of their German officers. For that reason, the whole city was born into the concentration camp. And the gentleman from my city told me, don't envy us because because we're all going to be killed. Well, we were there already eight days, and we seen killing every minute of the day. But we couldn't comprehend how it's possible that they're going to murder 30,000 innocent children and adults. The next day, we had curfew. We were locked into the barracks for two days, two nights. We heard the jones, the moans, the cries. After two days, everything quieted down. And I witnessed how they murdered 30,000 people, innocent people. Last year, 75 years passed by and they had January 27th, the liberation, Auschwitz liberation, they were celebrating. And I, all through those years, when I thought about those people, I wanted to convince myself that it wouldn't be possible that I witnessed how they murdered 30,000 people. I happened to watch Changed generals. I arrived to MSNBC, and there was a gentleman who was eulogizing those people who perished the Auschwitz concentration camp. So I, I was convinced that was no dream; it was reality. Forty-four, as I said, hundreds of thousands of. Hungarian Jews was brought into the camp. So we have to stand in line order to be tattooed on the, our arm. We weren't called by our names. We had a number tattooed on the arm. There was a shortage with the tattooer because there hundreds of thousands of Hungarians was coming in. So sometimes you have to stand in line for three, four days before they were able to put the tattoo on you. As I was standing in line, the SS came over and they needed people to work. I had a round face. They always picked me the first one. We came out of the line. The tattoo was um, put on my arm. They packed us in the cattle car. They told us that they gonna take us to work. Well, we traveled again in a cattle car. It was cold, was no food, I don't know how long. We arrived high up in the Bavarian mountain to another exterminating camp called Buchenwald. When we arrived there, you have to trip naked, shave your hair again, have to go through a disinfecting procedure. By the way, when we arrived there, the prisoners who were there already a couple of years, does. In below, when it gets below zero and the people have to stand in roll call, they would take the water holes on the people and they sprinkle them until they froze to death. So when you arrived, as I said, you have to go through the disinfecting procedure, shave your hair. There was a big tub with full of harsh chemicals. Everybody had to rush down themselves into the tub on head to toe. When you came out of the tub, they put us in a cellar sitting on a cement floor. Our eyes, our skin was burning, we were in pain. And if they needed people to work, you survived. If they didn't need people to work, they wouldn't feed you for a day. You would go to the chamber, to the gramatural. As I'm sitting on the floor, very unhappy, full of pain, somebody walks into the room and begins to question the people. Anybody knows anything what happened to my family. As he came closer and closer to me, I discovered... My brother-in-law, I recognize him. I never met him in person, but I seen him on picture. He was born in from Brussels, not as a Jew. He had falsified Christian paper. He was born in as a resistant fighter, as a partisan, and Christians had better treatment. He was called couple there, meant for men. And Day before, he's the only one who was able to come into the room. And day before, he spoke to the transport who came in. And he was looking for somebody to give some information about my family. And so he came back the next day. And that's the way he find me there. I was there for six weeks. Before I had a chance to say goodbye to him, they needed people to work again, and they picked me again. They put us again in a cattle car, and we went through Germany. We came to the city Leipzig near Leipzig. was a city called Lena, who had a biggest kerosene refinery. The Allies' planes used to come and bomb every night. We were taken there to clean up after the bombing. We were housed in a horse barn sleeping on a cement floor. We were given a wooden pair of shoes, wooden sole, canvas-top shoes, but we weren't allowed to wear the four miles, except before we entered to the refinery. We had to put the shoes, shoe, tie the shoelaces, put the shoes on our shoulder, march bare feet on the unpaid road. which was full of stones. Many people's feet got infected. And every day got worse and worse. If they couldn't pick up the speed with the rest of us, they were constantly beaten until they died on the road. That lasted for two months. After two months, they decided we should, shouldn't waste the time to walk. There was a vacant lot. Processed it from the refinery, they put some tents there and they housed us in those tents. The Allies planes used to come every night, bomb. And many times the Shepner came through where we were housed. And many of us was dying, but we didn't mind that. We preferred that. Because this way we felt that maybe, maybe one of us has a chance to survive. And tell the world what was happening. That lasted from the spring of 44 till about September 44. By that time the refinery was so bummed out that they couldn't see that they can put it into working condition. By that time, many of us died from the shrapnel of the bomb, or if we couldn't leave the heavy iron after the bombing and the heavy stones. The SS was guns and the back of you and beating you until you died. So the, by September, they decided to, the few people who left alive, they decided to take us to another place. We traveled again without food. It was raining and snowing. And we arrived high up in the Bavarian Mountains. We were taking that to dig tunnels under the mountains, travel to the railroad station, unloading railroad tracks, bring it to the mountain. We were housed in a horse barn. After six weeks, a typhus epidemic broke out, and half of the people perished. The other half was remained to work there from September 1944, till middle of March 1945. This place where we worked was very close to Buchenwald. Buchenwald was liberated by the Americans around April 11, 1945. So it was very close. We were very close. So I happened to be in a railroad station unloading railroad tax. I fall down, and a piece of iron fall on my right foot, broke three places. No medical attention. A few days later, they put us again in the cattle cars. The German was running for their own safety, the German SS. Because they knew that the Americans could liberate Buchenwald any day, they put us in a cattle car again. We traveled I don't know how long. It was freezing cold, no food to eat. People was dying during the journey. Left and arrived. Right. By the time we arrived to Buchenwald, I was frozen. They told I was dead. I was put among the dead people. And they came to transfer the dead people to the crematorium. The crematorium was worked by the prisoners. The the prisoner who worked by the crematorium discovered that I was just frozen. I wasn't dead. Five days later, I woke up in a barrack. I was age of 21. I weighed 72 pounds. I defrosted, it's amazing. And I was told the story how oh, the prisoner saved my life and why he was able to do it. I was so happy to be alive. I was incarcerated about, a, I'm including the ghetto time in a city and the concentration camp for about a year and a half. And suddenly, I looked down. I witnessed the worst I ever seen the whole year and a half. About 20 to 21, person walks into the room completely naked. They didn't look like human beings. Pieces of, they looked like skeletons you see in a museum, excepts of skin on. There was not one clear place on their skin. Pieces of flesh was missing all over. I was told they had traveled for six weeks. We an open cattle again when it was snowing and raining. The people got beserved and bitten into each other's flesh. Can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. I don't know if they ever were able to recuperate, but how they walked into the room beyond my comprehension. And days later, I asked the people there to carry me outside to get some air. They carried me outside. I couldn't stand up on my feet. And I hear a gentleman speak with a French accent. I recognized the voice when I wore there a year before and I met my brother-in-law, he also introduced me to this gentleman. I was so happy to hear his voice. The first guy asked him if he knows where my brother-in-law is. He says, he's here, he would be so happy to know that you're alive. I reunited with my brother-in-law about three or four days before we were liberated. When he looked at me, he told me, he says, soon as you can gain strength enough to travel, I will not let you go back to Czechoslovakia. By that time, my city changed again, became under Russian occupation. She says, you go to with Brussels, Belgium. And that's what I did. I went to Brussels, Belgium. I find my sister during the war, she was... Had falsified Christian paper. Her two children was given to a Christian family and she paid for them every month and they survived. And my younger sister escaped to Marseille, France, and she survived. I recuperated there for two months. And then I got a message from Germany that my two sisters survived the concentration camp, and they're going back where we came from. As I said, by that time it was Russia. By the way, my mother, my aunt, my cousins, and their children, they all perished in a concentration camp. I told you I come from a family of six. I had four sisters and a brother. My brother, age of 18, died from malpractice on two doctors. My father, I was the youngest one, I thought I was about eight to ten years different. I was the youngest one. So, three weeks before we went into the ghetto, my father was working with a cane, a very frail man. So the Germans and the Hungarians decided why should we take him anywhere? They beat him so badly. Three days later, he died. So he was buried in my city three weeks before we went into the ghetto. So as I said, as soon as I heard that my two two sisters is alive and they're going back to my city, so I immediately went to the Czechoslovakian Council. I had a hard time to convince him, but he did because Europe was completely bombed out. I convinced him, he gave me the papers, it was a very difficult trip because many places I have to walk from one city to the other order to catch the train. I managed to get back. I find my two sisters. I also find three of my cousins. We stayed there for three days. Then we went up to Prague. Prague was under Russian occupation, but they said Prague is going to be liberated any day. We stayed there for six weeks. We seen that the Russians are not going anywhere. We didn't want to stay under communism under no circumstances. They recommended to us, if we go back to Germany and we stay in a displaced persons camp, we'd be able to emigrate to some other countries. So we went back to Germany. The part of Germany was called Niederbayern. The city was called Degendorf. They housed us previously, before the war ended, was a Hitler's youth camp, so it had very nice facilities. I begin to work for the UNRWA. The UNRWA was the beginning of the United Nation. So <laughs> I worked in a magazine. We got all the f- food from America, the retro packages. And I was responsible to divide the food among the people in the camp. Then the city was surrounded by a the where all the displaced persons was living. They all came and got the food from me. So I was there from 1945 till the spring of 1946 when President Truman put a new amendment to the emigration law called the Truman Doctrine, that all these persons stayed such a, such a time in Germany and was able to come to America without having to wait for a quota. It was called the Truman Doctrine. I was very happy to hear because my mother... My grandmother, my mother's two sisters and a brother emigrated to the United States in the 1800s. My mother went to school in New York City. And I have a picture of my mother 1902 was taken in New York City. You want to see the picture? I'd be happy to show it. Yeah, that'd be
0: great. Here
1: is my mother who was taken.
0: Oh, wow. 1902.
1: Wow. She's beautiful. And my my grandmother left America, so I don't, so she and my grandmother went back, but her two sisters and a brother remained in America. We used to correspond with them, access pictures and letters, and they used to help us financially a little bit. So I always wanted to come to America. The 31st of August, 1946, I arrived here with an army boat called Marina Perch, and I find one of my aunt, the other one was deceased, and my uncle was living in California. So so I was... I had the language barrier. I didn't speak English, but I spoke five other languages. So my I was by that time, age of twenty-two, my aunt tried to figure out what kind of a job could I get where well, the people speak those foreign languages. I can learn from them English, the Meantime, time earn a living. I was very lucky that my aunt had a friend who had a friend in 719 Lexington Avenue. It was a cosmetology place. That was the deep place of New York City. All the Radio City stars, the Rock City Theater, Metropa, everybody who was there in that place. And it was an international shop. They had about 28 to 35 operators working there and they spoke those foreign, I could learn from them English, meantime we we're not living. they took me in as an errand boy. As I said, I was age of 22, I was the youngest one there, I had some hair, so I was about to install. <laughs> so, so I got the job as an errand boy to bring lunches to the people and all that. So I came to this country just to close what I had on with a broken heart and a broken soul after the war. I had a breakdown. I was hospitalized for three months. I did all the crying. And I decided I was too young to give up my life. And I was fortunate enough to have the wisdom to know that the first. My mother, I can do all the crying. I cannot bring my family back. I have to go forward with my life. First thing I have to learn, to give up hatred. Definition of hatred is loss of love. Without love, you're not living, you're just existing. Which is very difficult to do. But you can do it if you make up your mind. Then I also decided the best revenge is success in life. And I was determined to make success, particularly that I seen how hard my mother worked and, and what a difficult life she had. And so I decided I'm gonna make a success out of my life. As I, as I said, sometime. Desperation gives you more inspiration to learn something in a hurry. By end of the year, I was able to work on some of those famous people. And I did like Mary Martin that time, 1948. She was in a stage show called The South Pacific and many, many other stars. So by end of the year, I realized that I'm going to make a success out of my life. That I never went to cosmetology school. So, and you need a license to practice. So it came very handy. My boss's name was Madame Fisher. They called her the lady with the golden hand. And she did all the movie stars. Her husband's name was Alex Schlesinger was in an insurance business, but he handled the business end of it. He happened to have a nephew in the State Department, and his name was Arthur Schlesinger. I believe that he was head of the State Department at the time. That's the way I got my license. Please don't tell it to anybody. <laughs> After three and a half years, I made such a success. My name was in the paper all the time. And I saved up quite a bit of money. So in nineteen fifty I decided to come to California to get acquainted with the only living brother of my mother who lived in the east side of the town called Bollywood. I arrived here the third of March 1950. I left a tremendous winter in New York. When I arrived to Los Angeles Airport. I see the sun is shining, and I took the bus to go to his house. I seen vegetation. I said to myself, I'm not going back to New York no more. I never did. Little that I knew that my license wasn't valid to practice in California, just like an attorney. Different state, they had to have different license. Well, I wasn't worrying about to take my cosmetology test, by the time my English, I was here and a half was good enough. But California State required, before you fill up your education for the cosmetology test, you have to prove you had high school education in the United States. It didn't matter if you had college credit for Europe. Well, I discovered that near his house was the Theodore Roosevelt High School. I went there, and that was my lucky day. I met the teacher by the name Maria Kilbride, who was teaching the twelfth graders, and he said to me, "Young man, I'm gonna do everything in my power. You go ahead, get get your high school diploma, and you go and get your cosmetology license." Order for me to go to her class. By that time, I was age of twenty six. I have to. Get per, she had to get permission from the principal. She got the permission. I got went to her class for three months. I went to the adult night school at night. I bought all the vocabularies. I came here the 3rd of March, 1950. By September, I had my high school diploma, had my cosmetology license, and I got a job. All due to this beautiful teacher by the name of Maria Kilbride. She was very, very kind to me. In her class, everybody had to memorize a poem, which was a very meaningful poem, and that was her favorite one. It was written by Ed, Ed, Edwin Markham, E-D-W-I-N, M-A-R-K-H-A-M. He was born 1852, and the poem goes like this. There is a destiny that makes us brothers. None goes his way alone. All that we put into the life of others, it comes back to our own. Everybody had to memorize it in her class. By the way, I became very successful in California, and when I was looking for her to help her, Uh, She was gone, I couldn't. So I got my license, In September I got the job. I was on a job for two and a half years. 1953, I opened my own salon, 216 South Robertson Boulevard in Beverly Hills, called the Continental House of Beauty. And a few months later, I had the privilege to meet a native Californian young lady who was absolutely beautiful. And I show you the picture right now. She was 21. By that time, I was 28. That's two of us. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes,
0: beautiful, beautiful couple.
1: We were married for 42 beautiful years. Unfortunately, 25 years ago, I lost her from cancer. I never got married because nobody could replace her. So I have two daughters. Both went to UCLA. One graduated in three years, and then she went to Southwestern Law School and she married an attorney. My younger daughter graduated from music. She majored in psychology. She got her degree, and then she wasn't happy with that. She went two and a half years to USC, and she became a CPA. She married a CPA. I have four grandsons. They are my most success in my life. I Helped them with their education. Two became attorneys, graduated from USC Law School. And during their school, they lived practically in my house. They came early in the morning to study here. Grandpa made them breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -hmm. I told you, put food in your stomach, your brain works better. Mm So, and I have two younger ones, my younger daughter. One is 28, and one is 24. One graduated from Stanford. He majored in computer science, age of 23, with a master's degree from Stanford. And he has a job with Microsoft. And my youngest grandson graduated also age of 23 with a master's degree from Austin, Texas. He went there for a uh, 60 honor student class. She, he couldn't get into Stanford at the time, and he has a job with Apple. Wow. Those are my success story. They are, They practically call me every single day. The two attorneys, they're very bright. One is 32, one is 34. Mm-hmm. One works for a very big uh, entertainment law firm here. And the other one works for the father, also an attorney, and has an office. My son in law is retired, so he's managing the office in Seattle. So, so this is the most success in my life. I'm going to be 97 in May. They call me practically every single day. They still ask my advice. They love me not because I am, their grandfather, they love me, but I stand for. As they say in America, never too late. I was aged 82, lost my eyesight, aged 78. My daughter was constantly bothering me. Why don't you go there and work for the Museum of Talrand, which is located about... about uh, four or five blocks from my house, you can walk there. I told my daughter I, I would love to, but I don't feel that I have the educational background. I don't have a rich vocabulary. So one day I decided to go there, age of 82, and I applied for the job. And then before I started, I listened to all the other lecturer, the Holocaust survivor. And when I heard them, I decided that I can do it. I was born with common sense. You cannot get from box. Well, I've been there 15 years. It, I made such a tremendous success out of my lecture that I have over 1,200 letters from people, highly educated people. I change their life. I lecture. All very important places, people hears me. In four years ago, I made the Hollywood Reporter magazine the cover of it, which is eleven Holocaust survivors who, are, who are uh, associated with the movie industry. And. Uh, <clears throat> And this month, as you know, the the operas, um, all the newspaper, I'm written. I was invited. to teach psychology was student who I took. I was invited about eight or nine years ago to the state of California by uh, the speaker of the assembly Karen Bass, who is a congresswoman now, and and. I did a lecture there to the uh, uh, to the assembly. And so here I am, as I said, blind. I am going to be 97. I still enjoy life. Not easy to get up in the morning, pull yourself together, but I think a but, somebody who is less fortunate than I am, how I can help. That's the most rewarding part in my life. Don't you ever feel sorry for yourself. Always think about somebody who is less fortunate, who you can help. There is nothing greater feelings. There is nothing that I had, have accomplished in my life and I look back. I wish I would not have to go through that much, that much bad part in my life. But as I said, I had, to, I had turned all the negatives into positives. You have, you, there are certain things in life you cannot help if you don't accept it and you feel sorry for yourself, you destroy your whole life. I look forward to get up every day and to help people. There is a young lady in a block in from my house who's 35 years old. She's been in a wheelchair with MS and blind. And I help her every which way financially. And Mr. Harry, when I hear your voice, you light up my whole day. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, uh, that doesn't come any better that's the best part of your life to be here all the earthly wealth that you accumulate you can take it with you to come to this world with nothing and you leave this world with nothing, but the impact and the good. And I want to tell to your audience, don't feel sorry for yourself. Life is beautiful. And all the beauty in life is free. When I get up in the morning and I have breakfast in my breakfast room, which faces the street, I have two trees, and the little bluebirds come and sing there, or flies, that's. That's the reward in life. So much beauty. Don't ever feel happy. Don't question a lot of things. There is no answer in life, you know. My greatest uh, lecture happened to, I was invited in the maximum prison in Lancaster. There were 2,000 prisoners incarcerated for very as yes, crime is a horrible place. Among them, 55 inmates prison for teenage crimes, age 15, 16, and 17. One of them was there 10 years, the other one 20, and, and the third one was there 30 years. They never had hope. And after my lecture, the prison, I, I pointed out to them that God gave you the greatest gift, your best, and the most important part of your body is your brain. Just think about it, what the brain does. He gave it to you that you should always think before you act, because once you act, you choose the wrong things, you can take it back and then you have to pay the consequences. That's what you are. And all the prisoners, after being there, about four years ago it was, yeah, and they sent me a, a letter in Christmas time and shows me how he's teaching this prisoner. whose name was Darren. Been there 30 years, never had hope. And he tells me, shows me on a picture that he's teaching my teaching, what I gave in the prison to the other prisoners and how he helps. Yeah. Mm. So I can tell it to you, life is still beautiful. I find it, And the only reason, because I'm helping somebody who's less fortunate.
0: Mm.
1: Do you have any questions?
0: Yes, I do. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it's just incredible. And I know it must be hard to, to tell that story. But again, I think it's important that we hear it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I definitely have a few questions. Some are from the audience. Um, the first one being, you know, how why do you think humans are able to commit these types of, of crimes against each other? And what can we learn from, from what you've been through, to to not let that happen again?
1: Well, it's extreme that you have to be very vigilant. Don't feel ever sorry for yourself. And speak up loud. Speak up loud. And just joy every day when you, God gives you an extra day. And as I said, all the material things in life, which a lot of people kill for a penny, doesn't accomplish anything. That's not, doesn't bring happiness. Life is definitely what you make. You have to make it yourself. Unfortunate that we all have to go through a lot of humps and bumps, and there is no question to it. And as I said, that a lot of people has a hard time to decide, like uh, Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor and, and a, uh, a Nobel Prize winner. He written the book, and he his, his quotes in a book, and many times after my lecture, people ask me how, and the book, he's, she, she quotes that, where was God, and he's a very religious Person He was, I never doubted God. God created humans, not puppets. And people think if they go and pray, their sin's going to be over. No. God created Mm. human beings and, as I mentioned before, gave you the brain. Think always before you act. And as I said, just think about it that I always tell my audience that we would be really puppets if, if God would control us. He was hoping that we use all the negatives for positive. And so you have to pay the consequences if you have this kind of a thinking. And as I said, speak out loud and be happy and make... And you have far more, God gave you far more, everybody has a special attribute they can contrib- contribute to, to a happy life if they tank, always use the brain and thank. Yeah. That's my oh. advice to the world. I love that. I love and that.
0: Ever- It's so important. I mean, and would you, would you, I I could certainly see you carrying that message over to the leaders in power all over the world right now. You know, we're, we're in some tenuous times at the moment.
1: I said, as I said, there is nothing that I didn't accomplish in my life. What I made up my mind to accomplish. I had a little inferiority complex because of my, that I didn't have the education, but there is a lady who is uh, head of the museum. She's the director. Her name is Liba Gaf. She's uh, was educated in in South Africa as a reporter, and she has the most you know that beautiful South African accent and and has a very rich vocabulary, very rich. So each time. We have premieres in a museum. I meet all the diplomats. By the way, I have pictures with all the movie stars and all. And I tell Leba, when you speak, I'm very jealous of your vocabulary. I said, this complex I have that I don't have it? He says, Bill Harvey, you don't have to have a vocabulary. You are smarter than all of us.
0: Yeah. there is definitely something to be said about being able to think before you make a decision. And it seems that you've always had this, this greater self-awareness about yourself. And even in the midst of, you know, freezing cold cattle cars and, and terrible conditions and, and coming to America, you've always been able to right the ship. How do you do that?
1: As I said, positive thinking. Positive thinking. I have to have a strong perseverance. I somehow I I I am so fortunate that I was born with the wisdom. Age four, I can remember my my mother and father had built this house, and I was fascinated by how they made the bricks from uh, some kind of earth and straw or something, and they put it into a form. So I can remember it real well, and was able to understand how my, I was the youngest one, you know, 10 years different. And so my mother was all, you know, she looked like an old baby, age of 42 when I was born. And that's nothing in America. A lot of people have their first child. But at that time, when you raise six children and she worked so hard as she did, she looked like an old lady. I always felt sorry for I had this, uh, I was born with this kind of a nature. I, I contributed to my mother, a gift from my mother. I never worried about myself. I just worried about how can I help. And I was able to help her age of 10, age of 16, and I had to pay the mortgage in the house of my mother. So when I when I look back, I don't regret a day of my life because I always had the wisdom to know that how much my mother loved me because she worked so hard. She can take the cheapest meat because, you know, very seldom we had meat because very expensive and make cook for a for a king. Cook, she, she had such ability
0: do you ever do just, you ever just, speak to your mother um in your day to day just in your head? do you ever reach out to her
1: I talk to her you know, see her pictures It's in my dining room you know i have a and, and you know I speak to her all the time and thank her for all the wisdom and all the good things one I inherited from her mm. you know?
0: And what, what have you learned from your mother in your life that the mother listening to this right now should be teaching her child
1: the perseverance that she had? How did she do it? Not sleeping, fall to sleep on a sewing machine. Monday she didn't know she gonna <laughs> able to Friday night we usually have the nice dinner than usually, and usually didn't even know that. She gonna have the food and by Friday night she always had some surplus to help someone who didn't have nothing. That's the way she was. Mm -hmm. Never heard her complain. She was a very self-spoken, very intelligent lady, very intelligent.
0: No nice, you're here nice. now and you're you're sharing this message with with the entire world well, and we're so grateful for that I mean we're so incredibly grateful
1: there is no place like the United states no place even that we had this problem yesterday which is very sad you know that we had that, 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 that we just the, the pressed all over the world the way we uh the way we keep democracy here, which is true, there is no place like the United States of America with all the problems that we have, you know.
0: Yeah. If there were one great message that you would want to leave with the audience before we close it out today, what would that be?
1: Joy every single day God gives you. And don't ask questions. There is a lot of things. There is no answer. And be happy every day. And happiness is the way you perceive things in life. We all have to go through difficulties. We have to overcome it. And don't ever feel sorry for yourself and help someone who's less fortunate. That's the greatest, that's the greatest thing that you can, achieve in life when you help someone who's less fortunate. I there is nothing, as I said, financially. Either way, age of 56, I quit the beauty business. I said, I'm going to live all the beautiful women instead of bathing until they leave me. <laughs> but, and I want to tell you that I regret sometimes that I didn't have the educational background and so forth, but there is nothing that I didn't accomplish in my life, but I made up my dialogue to, to accomplish it because I believed in myself and I never felt sorry for myself. And I accomplished far more than I ever anticipated to accomplish. So I want to tell the people just joy everyone. It's a gift from God to joy. But the only way you're going to joy it, if you think about someone how you can help, there is nothing greater than that. And to be recognized by your own family the way they do, I don't expect anything from them. I'm grateful that I am here And I can still share my wisdom with them. And that's the greatest. Wow,
0: it's such an honor. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with me and my audience. And we are forever, forever grateful. Thank you.
1: And you are a beautiful lady.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. That's a high compliment considering the company that you have kept.
1: And it was a pleasure meeting you.
0: Pleasure meeting you and as I, well.
1: And I hope that uh, I did some good for the people. Let me know the respond of the people. And if they have any question, I'd be very happy to you know answer.
0: I will. I will. Thank well, you so much, Mr. Harvey. Uh,
1: it was a privilege to be with you
0: and your audience you have been listening to the motherhood unstressed podcast and i'm your host liz carlisle thank you so much for tuning in i'm so grateful that we got this time together today and if you love this episode i would so appreciate it if you would share it out on your social media make sure to tag us at motherhood unstressed connect with us at motherhood unstressed i'd love to connect with you uh, and see where the work has gone in the world And make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss out on an amazing interview with an incredible guest or our weekly guided meditations every Wednesday.